you're going through this going through this series on the Apostles' Creed. Why are you going through the series on the Apostles' Creed? Because it offers you a better story. So Thomas says. What does he know? Well, I think he knows a lot. What's the Apostles' Creed? It's the it is the shortest and clearest and oldest uh, summary uh, that's both short and clear. And there might be older there might be older summaries of Christian doctrine, but this is the shortest oldest summary of Christian doctrine. And people who there are people in the world who call themselves Christians who don't believe the, the, the tenets of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but I just want to say that doesn't make good sense. If you call yourself a Christian, but you don't have the tenets of the Apostles' Creed, you really just have a Christianity that is no different than any other ethical system that you may encounter in the modern world. And most of the ethical systems in the modern world are borrowing from Christianity. So uh, a Christianity without the Apostles' Creed doesn't make logical sense. Uh, so we, we want to keep, keep a hold of it. But the most important reason you want to keep a hold of it is because it really is a better story. The Apostles' Creed summarizes an historical reality centered on Christ, and it invites you to live into it. Okay? So you're looking at each piece of this story, and as you look at each piece of the, of the story of the Apostles' Creed, it's inviting you in. It's inviting you in. And tonight, this, this part of the story that you're in is the story of Jesus, not in general. Uh, you know, Jesus not as uh, most people in the world take Jesus as a good teacher who, gen- who generally has some good ethical advice. But tonight we want to look at Jesus in specific. And these, the specific phrase is this one, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is a specific claim about who Jesus is. Okay? And this way of talking, there really are sort of two ways of talking about Jesus that we, that we do in, in the Reformed faith. We talk about Jesus Christ, his person and work. Talk about who he is and what he does. Those are sort of the two easiest ways that you can know something about a person. Know who they are, know what they do. Uh, this phrase, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is a who he is phrase. We're talking about the person of Christ when we talk about this phrase. Okay, So it's a who he is phrase, and literally, first and foremost, it's who is Jesus in his conception, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if we put that out there, conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're saying who Jesus is is 100% God. If he's begotten by God, if he's conceived by God, then he is 100% God. Secondly, who is he in his birth? He's born of a human woman who lived in history. So what we're asserting about who Jesus is, is that he's 100% man. He is a human. Okay? So as we just kind of unpack this a little bit from this passage of scripture, my hope is that you're going to see that Jesus is as God, is so powerful that you must obey him. But secondly, that he's, as a human, that he's so understanding that you can trust him. Start with conceived by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, 100% God, so powerful you must obey him. Look in uh, verse 26 that we began with. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So what do you have? You start this story with an angel. Uh, and so there's, there's all these elements in the gospel of the fantastic and the mundane. So you have an angel, which is like big deal, big news, cosmic being. 
But he gets sent to Nazareth, which is Nowheresville. It's a small town. It's not important. But God sends this fantastic being to this mundane place. And more than that, he's sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, I want you to clue into something. Uh, there are different, there's a, there's a range of things that the word virgin can mean. It can mean a young maiden. Uh, it can mean a, a woman who has, uh, or a man who has not had sexual relations, right? So which is it here? There are some who would say, oh, virgin, virgin is Mary. It has the lexical range of she's just, she's a young girl. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't do the deed. When it says that she's a virgin betrothed in verse 27, it's a, it's a real strong hint to the reader that you should take it in that sense of uh, a young maiden who has not had sexual relations. Because uh, to be betrothed and to not be chaste in that sense uh, would be grounds for divorce. And if you read in Matthew's gospel uh, about this same story, there is a sense when when Mary's pregnancy is found out, you know, he was under he was under the impression that she was, in fact, a virgin virgin. Okay, so uh, people will try. People will say maybe even maybe even professors at this university will say, hey, there's a range of things that virgin can mean. But in this sense, when you read this, it's it's about a it's about a young woman who's not had sexual relations. And you go, why is, that, why is that important? Why is that so important that it makes it into the creed? Is, is there something, does God have some weird hang-up about sex? No, but I think the hang-up, it's, it's not a hang-up, but the thing that's, that we're talking about in here is the idea that God is doing something miraculous. We have an angel. We have a woman who, uh, we have the Holy Spirit at work. And we can't see that. We have a woman who's not had sexual relations giving birth to a child. And, and now, all of a sudden, we're in miracle territory. And when we're in that territory, the first question you have to ask yourself is, do I buy this or not? One theologian I read said it this way, just give me these three words, in, or give me these words, in the beginning, God. And I can take the rest of the Bible. He says, I can take the, I can take the miraculous story of uh, the whale swallowing Jonah. If I have in the beginning God, I can even take Jonah swallowing the whale. Similarly, are you going to take the supernatural event of this? And that's, that's the territory that we're in. When God does something new, when God does something different, when God is setting up his people for something that they could never possibly imagine, miracles usually are part of that. Can you even allow that to be you know, in your frame of reference? So verse 28, uh, you know, we're going to find out that even Mary is wrestling with this. Uh, the angel comes to her and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So the angel shows up. He gives her this message. You're favored. Something good has come to you. And yet in 29, we get this, this uh, backstop. Mary is troubled by the saying. And she's trying to figure out, what are you talking about? What kind of greeting is this? An angel shows up and says, oh, greetings. Oh, favored one. What kind of greeting is this? The angel says, do not be afraid. Very common thing for angels to say. He shows up there all, all the time. You find angels in the Bible. When an angel shows up, 
People who are in the presence of the angel are afraid of him. And the angel usually has to say, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to smite you. But he says it. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That literal word for favor is is the word grace, which is a concept very, you know, very important here at RUF that we talk about all the time. Everything we want to we want to pepper it. We want to season it. We want to figure out a way to work the idea of grace into almost everything that we're talking about. And why? Because it gives us this one really important truth. That when it comes to your salvation and my salvation, grace is what's necessary. When it comes to salvation, God is always the first mover. And that's what grace is. Is that God comes to you first. Before you even know you need him, he's on your trail. He's coming after you. So this greeting, this very greeting that the angel comes is grace. God moves toward Mary first. And then the news, verse 31. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, you'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means literally uh, Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. So salvation, God is moving first in this. God has come to Mary with this. And then uh, verse 32, uh, it says, uh, uh, he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, the throne of David is a big deal whenever you run into it in Scripture. You run into it in the New Testament, uh, this is Messiah language. And where Mary is living, everybody wants the Messiah. Where she's at, uh, they're a country that is occupied by a foreign force. (laughs) The Russians have invaded Ukraine. Everybody in Ukraine wants somebody to throw off the Russians. They want the Russians to go home and leave them alone. Well, so it was in Israel at this point in time. Israel was there. Rome occupied Israel. And everybody just wanted Rome to go home and leave Israel alone forever. And if they could just find a military leader who was strong enough, if they could just find someone who could rally the troops, if they could just find someone who could really punch them in the nose, then they'd be free. And so they're always talking about who's going to come and be our king. Who's going to come and sit on the throne of David? Who's going to save us? Who is God going to send to us to help us out of this? Jehovah is salvation. He's going to sit on the throne of David. And then you get to verse 33. Uh, He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. The Messiah wasn't just for a temporal moment in time, not just for this moment of Israel throwing off Rome. But once he did that, he was going to usher in a kingdom where Israel was going to be the chosen people on top of everything, all kingdoms, all throughout the world for the rest of time forever. They were going to be culture number one, nation number one, people number one, and that's what they wanted from this Messiah. It was a big, big promise, and they had known so much of great disappointment. And the angel shows up and basically says this, Mary, the Messiah is coming. He's not just coming to you. He's coming through you. The Messiah is not just coming to you. The Messiah is coming through through you. And Mary has a very sane response. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? 
Now you have to ask yourself this question. Is this a question of doubt or is this a question of faith? Is Mary asking this question, how is this going to be? Because I don't even believe that that can be possible. Or is Mary saying, okay, well, tell me how this is going to be because I, I don't know, but I, but I believe you, but can you just let me in on the plan a little bit? Which is it? Is it a question of doubt or is it a question of faith? The only way we know is by two things. One, earlier in Luke, there's a story about a guy named Zechariah who has a similar meeting with an angel. And it's very clear in that meeting that Zechariah has a question of doubt. That's one of the ways that we know. Zechariah is a priest. He, uh, he's an old man. Uh, his wife is an old woman. They've never had children. Uh, and, and Zechariah is doing his priestly duty one day, and an angel shows up and says, your wife is going to have a son. And Zechariah says to the angel, how can that be? Because I'm an old man. And the angel basically uh, puts sort of a punishment on him and says, You're not gonna be, the Lord is, is not going to allow you to speak until this son is born. And Zechariah goes mute. And he has to write things down. So Zechariah getting this, uh, getting this sort of curse that comes on him, this curse of silence that lasts for these number of months, is, a, is, a, is a, a recognition that his question was a question of doubt. So something like that doesn't happen to Mary. Instead, we get Gabriel's response... And he, instead of putting some kind of, instead of putting some kind of curse on her, making her be quiet or, you know, rebuking her in some way, he actually lets her in on the plan. And in that context, we know it's a, it's a question. Her question is a question of faith. Did you know that it's okay to have questions of faith? Do you know that it's okay to have doubts and to question your doubts, to doubt your doubts. It's okay to have questions and to question your questions. I hope if you're learning anything in college, you're learning that, to question your questions and to doubt your doubts. And so she says, how will this be? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy. He'll be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And this idea of overshadowed uh, goes all the way back to Exodus, to the end of Exodus when, uh, in, when uh, Israel's, uh, they built the temple. God gave them instructions, gave Moses instructions, or sorry, not the temple, the tabernacle, gave them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And when they got it built, the whole point of having the tabernacle and having this weird tent that they carried around in the desert for their church was so that God's presence could meet with them. And what happened when they built the tabernacle, there was a cloud that overshadowed. The glory of the Lord overshadowed that tent in the desert and came down and God's presence was with them. In Psalm 91.4, this same word for overshadowed is used, where this, uh, the idea is that he who rests in the shelter of the Most High uh, will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And then there's this imagery of a bird, and it's kind of like this idea of a, of a hen or a mother bird putting her wing over her, over her nestlings, her brood. And that's what he's saying when he says he's gonna, the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. It's going to be so gentle. It's like, it's like a wing coming over you and protecting you. 
It's like the glory of the Lord, the presence that comes down in a shadow over you. And I know some of you are thinking, uh, some of you are thinking, yeah, it's still a little weird, isn't it? How does she actually, biologically, become pregnant by the, by the power of the Lord? Actually, I talked to one woman about this, and, and uh, a little more seriously, she asked this question. She said, was it consensual? That was her question. And she was deadly serious when she said it, in a way that only a woman living in our place and time could ask it. Because the power differential. God's so powerful, I must obey him. How could you tell him no? But a God so good and so understanding that you could absolutely trust him. But there's something else about this question. Was it consensual? It assumes something. It assumes something about God's relations with Mary, and it's not, it's not that. Right? God, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was not actually having sex with Mary. It's not that. Right? Question your questions. But the power and the glory of the Lord, the presence, the, 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 the glory cloud, the presence of God, and the gentleness of God in the overshadowing, is, it fashions in her, in some miraculous way, this new life. That comes from God, 100% God, and grows in her 100% human. It's an amazing power. It's as if the Holy Spirit, as he did in creation, right? You talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And do you remember that first part in Genesis 1 where uh, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? And that uh, imagery of, of the Holy Spirit, of the God's Spirit hovering over the waters is the same word that, that birds do when they, when they brood over their nest. The power of the Holy Spirit does this sort of brooding, this overshadowing of Mary and creates something new, creates uh, something new again. The Son of God who is born and who is born holy, set apart, distinct from anything else. Okay, that's my attempt. That's my weird attempt to answer the how question. How did, how did that happen? I'm not going to try and give you the biology. Lots of people have written things on it. I mean, the virgin birth is something we could we could spend an hour talking about each thing that different people have written, and at the end of it, your head will still spin. You'll still be bored. I, I'm not telling you not to do it, but I'm telling you there there's there are some important things. That's my that's my attempt at the at the weird answer to how. But I want to say this: What answer could God give in this moment? That isn't going to sound weird. When God does something miraculous, what explanation of it could we understand? What explanation could he give us that wouldn't sound just a little too crazy to believe? But then, something amazing, something amazing and mundane happens. We can't understand the biology. We can't understand these, these strange things that we're talking about. But in verse 36, the angel says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Have you ever had friends, maybe relatives, someone, someone who can't conceive children? 
I have some very dear friends who, uh, who have not been able to conceive. It's the saddest thing, and it's the most, it's the, it's the thing that they grieve every day. And I grieve with them because I love them very much, and I, I can't imagine why they can't be parents. If I heard today that somehow they'd been able to conceive, and it's, I mean, it's been years. They're now, they're now entering into that, into that age where it would be impossible even if everything had gone right. If I heard that they had conceived, my question would be, how did it happen? And they said, you know, if someone came to me, if someone came to me and said, I just want you to know this happened and I know it and you don't, go check, go check on it. Here's what, here's, here's how you can know, Tag, that you can believe me. Your friends are pregnant. I trust them. In this moment, Mary's standing there. She's talking to the angel. She says, How's this going to be? He gives her this answer. It's got to sound a little bit crazy. And he says, but I got something else to let you know. Your relative Elizabeth, you know, the one who sold her, her husband, they're old. They can't have a child. They've never been able to have a child. She's pregnant. She's in the sixth month. Mary says, I've got to find out. I've got to go see. So the thing that she can't check on, she can't check on the biology. The thing she can check on, her cousin. And that's what she does. And so, and so the final answer uh, from the angel is, nothing will be impossible with God. And the final response from Mary is, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. See, he's so powerful, both in the fantastic and in the mundane. And I want to ask you, do you you know that? Have you experienced God like that? Uh, I think it was, it might have been G.K. Chesterton, it might have been Charles Spurgeon, I can't remember which one who said it, but he said, you know, most people who have a problem with Christianity, uh, it's not that, it's not that Christianity has been tried and it's found wanting, but it's that Christianity has been found hard and left untried. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that Christianity has been found hard and left untried. Can you believe in a God who can work in something so fantastic you you couldn't understand it, but who loves you so much that he would give you this mundane detail that you can check on? What are the mundane things? Who's the mundane person in your life who first told you what it was like to follow Jesus? And for a minute, you believed him. And so you tried Jesus. 100% God, so powerful you must obey him. But born of a virgin, Virgin Mary, 100% man, so understanding that you can trust him. So Mary goes, right? That's the part we didn't read, that Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and she finds out it's true. It's true. Elizabeth is pregnant. How did this happen? I mean, they actually did the deed and conceived. That was, that was how it happens with them. But it was impossible, but it happens. And when she finds out that it's true about Elizabeth, she can trust the rest. And can you read this story and do the same? In this strange thing that happens to Mary, that, you know, if you were in her place, you'd be like, I don't, I don't know if I can deal with this. Mary isn't left alone. She goes and lives these three months with Elizabeth, her good friend, her relative. And over a few months, now, 
this is this this is 46 through 56. You know, uh, the question is, did Mary did Mary just like all of a sudden in this interaction with Elizabeth suddenly break out into this amazing poem that people have been singing for generations ever since? Like just on the spot or over her time with Elizabeth as the reality of what was happening settled on her and the Holy Spirit was working in her and bringing her to an understanding of where things were. Did she pin this? Did she write first drafts and, and rewrites as the Holy Spirit led her to do it? I don't know. I don't know if it was in an instant. I don't know if it was over three months, but this is the Magnificat. It's literally titled the Magnificat. It's because it's, it's in because it's the first word of the poem in, in Latin. Uh, if you read a Latin version of the Bible. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so the question is, what's, what's he saving her from? Verse 48, he saves from her humble estate, the lowest of circumstances. She's poor in a country where her people are overrun. They're looking for the Messiah. It's not clear how things are going to turn out, but God is close to his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here's the big question. That thing, that word blessed, is when all generations will call Mary blessed, is that is, is Mary letting us know that she should be worshipped? Is that what they'll call me blessed means? Protestants answer that question, no. Your Roman Catholic friends answer that question, yes. You've got to make blessed do a lot of heavy lifting if you're going to answer yes. Now, there more, there's more than to be said. If my Roman Catholic friends were here, they would, they would, love, to, they would love to argue with me about it. But, but I, think the, I, think the, I think the bigger piece here, when we think about Psalm 1, blessed is the man. It's not saying worship that man. But it's saying God has shown favor and all generations will look at Mary as we're looking at her story tonight and say, what an amazing thing God has done because it is awesome for her. Right. She says it in verse 49, for he who is mighty, who has done great things for me. It's personal. It comes to her. She herself. And she says, holy is his name. Holy, he's set apart. He's unlike anyone or anything else. But in verse 50, it's not just for me. Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There's a, there's a legacy. There is a legacy of reverence. And those who reverence, not fear like I'm coward, I'm going to hide under the chair, but a legacy of those who fear, who have a reverent awe for God's name, generation after generation, will know the same mercy that Mary knows. It's personal. It's generational. And then in 51, he's shown strength with his arm. What else is he going to show strength with? He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud. What's, this, is, this is language that Mary picks up that's really a part of the story of Israel. It goes all the way back to the Exodus when Israel were slaves in Egypt and God said, I will show my power with my righteous right arm. And the proud that he scattered there was Pharaoh when he brought Israel out of Egypt. She's, she's hearkening back to an age-old story and saying that she's connected to that story. And that story has something to do with what she's experiencing as the, as the, the, the mother of the Messiah. 
And then she moves, she starts to move into this great reversal. He's brought down the mighty and he's exalted the humble. That's a reversal. We usually expect the humble to be low and the, and the mighty to be exalted because might makes right. No, there's going to be a great reversal. He's filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich empty away. It's not how it usually works. The hungry usually crawl off and the rich usually get more. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. No. Those who are hungry get filled. But those who are full, who don't have any room in their life or in their appetite for the things of God, there's nothing left for them. It reminds me of this uh, hymn line that says, All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. All the fitness that God requires of you or I is to just be hungry. Are you hungry for him? He will fill you. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Again, it's not just personal, but it's also people. And God has a long memory of mercy. Little mercies along the way in the stories of the Old Testament. And now in this moment when the Messiah is going to come through Mary, a big mercy now. And then in verse 55, our fathers, he spoke to our fathers. Which ones? This specific one, Abraham. And to Abraham's offspring forever. Mary, why are you ending the poem this way? Of all the fathers, she's already talked about David, the throne of David. Uh, She's talked about Jacob. Uh, She's talked about all these things. Why does she end the poem with Abraham? Ask, question your questions, doubt your doubts. Why pick him? Abraham's the earliest one. Grace came to Abraham first. God sought him out, just like he sought Mary out. Abraham realized that God was so powerful, he had to obey him. When did that happen? In this story in Genesis 22, where God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I want you to take him to the top of this mountain and offer him to me there as a sacrifice. Abraham in that moment knew that God was so powerful, he had to obey him in this test. And yet, do you remember the end of the story? As Abraham was just about to take the knife, after Abraham had said to his servants, I and the boy are going to go over here and worship, but we'll return to you. Knowing full well that a sacrifice doesn't get up and walk back. But Abraham, it says in the book of Hebrews, by faith, went, lays him on the fire, and Isaac goes with him. And as he raises his hand, God is so understanding that you can completely trust him. He says, Abraham, don't do it. Now I know that you have fear, that you have reverent awe for my name. And Abraham says to his son, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. Mary's looking back in order to look forward. The Messiah that's coming through her is the lamb that the Lord has provided. God comes to us first. And we look back and we can see it more clearly than Mary did. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb who went to the cross and took on himself your sin and my sin that we might be saved. He's the salvation that God has offered to us. 
And Mary's just beginning to understand that when she writes this amazing poem. And later on, after Jesus is born, it's going to say that she treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. And when Jesus dies, she's the one who's sad and grieving and thinking it's all over. And she's the one who is blown away at the miraculous resurrection that happens on Easter Sunday. All right, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he's so powerful you must obey him. He's so understanding you can absolutely trust him. And that's the question I leave for you. Do you know him in that, who he is?